We have a lot to talk about. We have no time for banter. Let's start the show proper, shall we? From the ice to your earbuds, a podcast about hockey, featuring things to do with hockey. From your friends at ESPN, it's ESPN on ice with Wachinski and Kaplan. It's ESPN on ice, the podcast where ESPN talks about coronavirus. I'm Greg Wachinski, senior NHL writer. I'm Emily Kaplan, national coronavirus reporter. And yeah, coronavirus. So, uh, since we last joined you, we, you and Craig Custance talked about coronavirus at the NHL Board of Governors, no, uh, GM's meeting, sorry. And since then, uh, Santa Clara County banned all mass gatherings over a thousand people, which means the San Jose Sharks are either going to play three home games in an empty shark tank or at a neutral site like the Cow Palace or on the road. Uh, in opponents' arenas or whatever, um, women's worlds was canceled because of coronavirus. Um, the media are no longer allowed in the dressing room and have to now stand in many places behind a velvet rope to interview players in uh, mixed zones and podium situations. And uh, Germany, oh, here's something fun, Germany canceled its season. Uh, just outright said, all right, that's enough. No more regular season, no more playoffs. We will not have a German champion, is what they said in their press release. And as we were doing the show today, uh, even more uh, municipalities, including the state of Ohio, uh, recommending that um, mass gatherings uh, don't happen any longer. Although they've, you know, haven't made the uh, the official uh, proclamation like Santa Clara has. Um, in some cases, I think they're kind of giant, trying to put the a ball in the NBA's court or the puck in the NHL's end, as it were, to make them uh, make the decision. But, oh boy, coronavirus is the biggest story in sports right now. It sure is. And I have to say, since Craig and I recorded that, things have escalated quite quickly, uh, quicker than any of us could have imagined. Honestly, like when I'm talking to Bill Daly at the GM meetings and he's telling me, you know, we're optimistic, knock on wood, we'd never have to do anything that dramatic they're now considering and having to go through these contingency pans of things that are very, very dramatic. Now, um, I'll talk about the media aspect of it first. As some of you guys know, I am on the executive board of the PHWA, uh, the Pro Hockey's Writers Association. Join if you haven't been a member. Contact me, Frank Sarah Valer, Chris Johnson. But uh, that means that we are privy to uh, some conversations about media access in the league and, and what the league's thinking of it is. Um, we have been assured by... NHL and NHLPA leadership that this is just a temporary ban. There are some people who all of a sudden saw that reporters weren't allowed in the locker room and started screaming doom and gloom. They're limiting our access. This is the new precedent. Once they take us out, they're never going to let us back in. That is not the case. These are unprecedented times. We have never seen um, a situation like this escalate globally. And it affect us in our workplace in this way. We quite frankly haven't. Like the months was a... Uh, an isolated outbreak in the NHL and SARS threatened to reach the NHL, but it never quite got there. And this is the NHL reacting. Um, I personally am not pleased by it. It's going to make my job a heck of a lot harder, but I understand mm-hmm. it. Um, as it pertains to the women's world championships canceled, it sucks. It sucks mm-hmm. so bad for these women yeah. who are having one of the worst years professionally that they can imagine. Not only are 175, including the top players in the world, boycotting playing in a pro hockey league this season, meaning they're playing less hockey than ever, less meaningful games. 
Let's remember the Four Nations tournament, or their other Four Nations Cup, their other big tournament was canceled in November um, because the Swedish team was boycotting um, their federation. So it, it really sucks for these players. I, I talked to Kendall Scoyne, Coyne Schofield last week. She was in Chicago. She obviously understood, um, but it was really disappointing for her to see her season and so many of her peer season end this unceremoniously. Yeah, and on the media thing, it's tough because anytime you or I or anybody else mentions it in up the public square, the immediate reaction is a bunch of people saying that we're complaining about it or thoughts and thoughts and prayers for now having to be eight feet away from these guys instead of three or stupid stuff like that. And like, look, it's no secret that our jobs are affected by this, but more to the point, it, it shows the, the chasm between people who think that all we do is go into the locker room and be like, tell me about your goal versus spending time in there and building relationships or, and, and getting stories that frankly can't be reported from the podium. Um, so hopefully it is temporary because I think people don't really recognize the kind of work that gets done in a locker room after the TV people ask their questions. No offense. Well, yeah, offense to the TV. Well, that people. sounds like you a asked, lot of offense to TV people. You, you asked completely inane questions and, and thanks, thanks for it. Cause it means we don't have to, um, on the women's world thing, I found it really interesting that they use the word postponed, which isn't the right word. Like, yeah, the 2021 World Championships, hopefully, are going to be happening in Nova Scotia. And yeah, if you have tickets for this one, you can use tickets, the same tickets for that one in theory. But also, as they told me, um, you know, on a case by case basis, you can get refunds. That's a cancellation. They ain't a postponement. They, there is no 2020 champion. There's just, there isn't. It just, it and the players who were selected to these teams aren't necessarily guaranteed to be selected to the teams next year. Correct. Yeah. So that, that was, that was sort of a weird deal. Um, here's the thing about the Sharks that I find interesting. Uh, I heard from an NHL source today that it's actually not up to the teams to figure out how they're handling this. Um, the NHL is going to be the one that says, here's where you're playing, here's when you're playing, here's how you're playing. So if the Sharks are like, we want to play a game at the Cow Palace, the NHL has to approve that or sign off on it or say, yeah, that's a good idea. Otherwise, they're going to be the final arbiter on where these teams play. Um, and I don't think the Sharks are going to be alone in this in this situation. I think it now is a, is a deal where... Santa Clara says three weeks. I'm sure other municipalities are looking at this and may do the same thing to try to stem the, the, the outbreak, but also more importantly, buy some time to start getting testing kits and treatment, um, in place to handle the, the, the epidemic. Um, it's, it's fascinating. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. And, and the Sharks had this drop in their lap on Monday night. That's for sure. They weren't prepared for this. The league kind of hinted that they thought it would happen at some point where a municipality would, would put a ban like this in place. Um, but the Sharks clearly weren't expecting it to happen this week, maybe because they're going on a pretty prolonged road trip and coming back on the 19th. I don't know, but it caught them by surprise. But again, like you're looking around this world, Emily, right now, like it started with the Swiss where they played the end of their regular season in empty arenas and then postponed their postseason for a few weeks until a ban on mass gatherings by the government passed. Uh, as we mentioned, Germany canceling their season. I mean, it is naivete to believe that the NHL is not going to be affected by this outside of the San Jose Sharks. Like, this is going to be a situation where it is the tip of the iceberg, and we probably have no concept of how many 
teams and arenas and cities are going to be affected by this thing in the next month. It's so true. And, you know, the word at the GM meetings was that the NHL is going to take the lead of public health authorities, CDC. And I got to get this right, whatever the equivalent is in Canada, Public Health Canada, Health Canada. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we're going to be saying this for the next three months, so I better get this right. The sneeze Um, Mounties. (laughs) Yeah, the sneeze Mounties. Um, But look, there's no secret about it. The NHL makes most of their revenue, millions and millions of dollars of revenue through their playoffs. This is their livelihood. They Mm -hmm. need to get this show to go on. And so little things like limiting the access of reporters to the locker room, that's just to protect their assets. Their assets are the players. The players are what play in the playoffs. The playoffs are what gets the millions of dollars. They're in their best interest to get these playoffs to go on and, and go on as normal because they don't want to slow any of the momentum this league has. We just saw them both that they're about to raise the salary cap yet again. We're about to enter the 32nd team. That said, it might be out of their hands. And whatever the CDC and Public Health Canada, someone's going to tweet at me telling me I'm getting it wrong. Uh, tell the NHL to do. They're going to have to do. Yeah, and and so today, the I was at the Sharks practice, um, their first since the order from Santa Clara. Uh, there was, you know, space built in between us and the players at the, at the podium and the whole thing. I was heartened to see the in-house media for San Jose at these press conferences. Because here's the thing about the ban. I'm going to whine for a second. If, like, reporters were banned from the locker room, but, like, the extension of the PR staff in-house media was able to go around the room and and shoot video and ask questions and get player reactions after games and stuff, that would suck. That would be unfair. And the other thing that would be unfair, too, is if, you know, we walk past the locker room and every reporter is is banned from it, but, like, the hangers-on and the cousins of sponsors and minority owners all get to go in and get their their, their jerseys signed in the locker room after the game, that would suck, too. So hopefully that's not going to be the case. Um, and, and, uh, and they do just, just make it a, basically a, a, a nobody but the players in a central staff zone, um, which is the way it should be. So we'll see how this plays out. I mean, it's kind of crazy that it's all happening. And as Joe Thornton said, I mean, it's surreal to like be in a community you've lived in for 20 years or whatever it's been for him and look around and there's like runs on toilet paper. Do you understand that I went to four different places this weekend, Emily, and there's no toilet paper in Santa Clara County? That's wild. My only question for you is because I haven't been around a team that's having to deal with this yet. As we've seen in the NBA, guys like LeBron James saying, I won't play or I don't want to play in front of an empty arena. What do the Sharks players have to say about that? I don't think they've processed it yet. It's interesting. One of the Sharks is uh, Timo Meyer, who is Swiss. And I asked him today, I'm like, have you talked to anybody from the National League in Switzerland that played in those games where they didn't have anybody in the arena? He's like, yeah, I did. And they just said it was just strange. Like it was, it was a very surreal atmosphere and you can't really get your bearings. And the, the two things you heard from these guys were one, they don't really know what they want yet. Like Joe Thornton seemed to indicate he'd probably rather play in front of a crowd than no crowd, um, which would speak to neutral, neutral site games or maybe playing on the road. Um, but Bob Bugner, their coach had a real, had a real good take on it, which was that the biggest issue is that if you're playing in an empty arena, now all of a sudden you've got to figure out a way to get yourself going. Like you have to self-motivate. There's not going to be any noise. There's not going to be any crowd. There's not going to be a home ice advantage. Like it completely changes the psychology of the game to basically play the game in a vacuum. And if you're a Sharks player and you're going from one of the loudest, well, I mean, in seasons in which they win, loudest environments in the NHL to, 
utter silence when you're on the ice against an opponent. It's going to be a hell of a change for them. And I, and I truly think that that's, at the end of the day, the best solution is, is to play in an empty arena. You know, you get to sleep at home at the very least, see your kids, be in the community, what have you, not have to be in a hotel somewhere. Um, I think that's probably the smart, and also from a scheduling perspective, given the, you know, space that's being taken at other arenas in the area and also like road arenas. I think the smartest decision is just to play in the empty building and, and, and do these three games and be over with it. Now, you know, maybe it's an easier decision because the Sharks are a country mile away from the playoffs. It would be different if they were on the bubble. But uh, I think that's ultimately what they're going to do. And probably they're not going to be alone in doing this. Um, no, speaking of the NHL, you, did you see? Yeah. Did you see what the Devils put out today? Where they Was pretty it, much oh, said like, you can come to our games. Game? Yeah, yeah. Except if you think you're sick, you've been around someone who's sick, you've traveled recently. Like that's a really tricky line to walk and a weird precedent to send, in my opinion. Yeah, and what you hope that it's not simply just a bunch of cover your own behind type stuff, like mm. you know that the hey, know, we told people not to come. get off. You know, like like yeah. you either tell nobody to show up or or keep playing and and have people assume the risk of going because this just seems like well we told people who were sick not but you, you don't know where their symptoms are like they could be carriers no one knows there's no tests anyways uh, the funniest thing today by the way was evander kane saying it would be very strange to play in an empty building and this is a guy who played for the atlanta thrashers by far the funniest <laughs> thing that was done today um well that's a perfect transition for me because we do mention evander kane with our next guest and should we introduce yeah. him now that we do, yeah. And now joining us is a very special guest, a listener of the podcast, I believe. Uh, he can correct us if we're wrong. <laughs> but it's Patrick Burke, the NHL Senior Director of Player Safety. Now, Patrick, are you a listener of the podcast? I listen to you guys while I'm running and then send you both texts correcting any mistakes that you made during the course of the podcast. <laughs> That's accurate. Can confirm. Can confirm. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, thanks for joining us, bud. There's many questions we have for you. Let's start with your gig your player safety gig. Um, George Peros has been a man under fire uh, for a lot of people who don't believe that player safety has doled out as many suspensions or as many lengthy suspensions as they should to try to um, correct behavior or punish offending players. Um, first off, do you think that's fair to George? And the second thing is there's a prevailing theory that there's too many guys that would be on the injurious side of plays that run player safety and that player safety would be better if there were more guys, say like a Paul Correa type in there that were the victims of such plays. What do you say to that? All right. Well, we'll take it in both parts here. First part is, uh, have, have people been fair to George? And I think George knows that when you take this job, you're never going to be popular. You're always going to get, uh, a ton of heat and a ton of criticism because um, it's very rare that our department issues the suspension and all sides are happy. Usually uh, the side with the offending player thinks we went too hard. The side with the victim thinks we went too light. Uh, fans of both teams, media that cover both teams uh, tend to pick a side and go the same way. So no matter what we do, it's pretty rare that uh, people are going to praise George in our department. But I think overall, uh, having been here for uh, seven years now, worked for Brendan Shanahan, Stefan Cantel, and now George. Um, I think George has done a fantastic job. He's a, a wonderful boss, and, and people inside the league who know him 
uh, really have a ton of respect for him, whether that's players, general managers, uh, those of us who work for him. So I think George knows that he is part of the gig. Uh, I don't think he's getting more heat than Shanny did, Q did, going all the way back to the days of uh, Coley or uh, even my father doing it. Uh, heat comes with it. I don't think he's getting more than, than they ever did. So um, as to part two, uh First of all, has Paul Correa ever expressed any interest in working for the league? His name keeps getting thrown out. He, oh, he's the last time he's I the saw example. Him and told him what I did. But he's yeah. just the example. I think he though. likes surfing. I think he's very comfortable doing whatever he's doing. I think people are just yeah. saying that, like, when you got a, a thing with Peros and Pronger and, you know, guys that used to throw to elbows and, and the punches versus take them, uh, that there's a prevailing wisdom that maybe the, the, the player's safety would be run differently if it was more victim based. Right, so two guys who, whose career were ended by head injuries don't count, is what you're saying, Peros and Pronger? No, I don't think that's what I'm saying. I'm saying that, you know, Pronger was suspended, you know, in double digits in his career, and, and that maybe a guy who, who wasn't such an offending player would have a better sense of, of, uh, of, 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 you know, what should be a suspension and what shouldn't be. All right, well, uh, I, I've heard that a lot. I know it's not just your opinion. Um, a few thoughts on that. First of all, I think it's a, a misconception that you can predict how a player feels about supplemental discipline based on the style of play that they played. Um, we've had a, a rotating group of directors since I've been here, um, as well as constantly talking to former players, GMs, current players. Um, and one of the things that I found is a lot of skill players uh, don't want to take any physicality out of the game, whether that's the notion that they had to fight through it so the current guy should have to as well, whether they just enjoy uh, the physical aspects of the game. Um, but uh, I've worked with or and am in communication with a lot of very highly skilled alums uh, who don't think that uh, we should be increasing the amount of supplemental discipline and actually – many of whom think we might have gone too far. So um, I, I'm not sure that the, these guys who played a skill game necessarily will would be upping the number of suspensions. Um, to use a couple examples without getting into how they view plays, uh, currently on our staff is Ray Whitney, uh, a, a, I would say, pretty highly skilled guy, over 1,000 points in the NHL. Uh, we also had Brian Leach on staff my first year here. Um, there's a skill element in our department. There are guys giving advice, giving their input on plays in our department who play that style of play. So uh, do I think that we have to change the boss to make sure that it's someone who got hit a lot or was particularly skilled? No. I think the things that you're looking for in a uh, senior vice president of player safety are intelligence, uh, communication skills, hockey knowledge, the ability to connect with players, uh, and the ability to, to be thoughtful and think through uh, plays and how our uh, disciplinary process is going to affect the league and how hockey is played on the ice in the big picture. And I definitely think we have that with, with the group we have between George Stefan Cantel, Ray Whitney, uh, Damian Echeverrieta, and myself as the senior staff. I think we have a really good group, a really good balance, and a nice mix that's doing a good job keeping the game as safe as possible. 
Patrick, you mentioned you guys are, you know, no strangers to criticism and you hear it all the time, but there were some pretty high profile um, critiques headed your way about a month ago from Evander Kane, who I will note is a repeat offender. Um, but he called out the Department of Player Safety for, quote, a completely flawed system. He said, from the suspensions to the appeal rights, it's baffling to me how we as players agreed to this. He essentially called for an independent third party to make these decisions to, quote, remove that bias that transpires in this department headed by George Peros. So when you and the rest of the senior staff, you hear him say this, you, he put it out on Twitter, what's going through your mind? Um, not all that much, uh, to be honest. I, I think that, you know, we certainly saw it. We read it. We um, talked about it. But uh, I, I don't think that, you know, we saw it as anything more than uh, a frustrated player who's on a team that's having a frustrated season and, and is looking to, to lash out a bit. I think there's, um, you know, the, the Sharks are not having the season they anticipated. Uh, I wonder if Evander's having the season he was hoping for. And he's frustrated, and, and that's that's understandable. So um, a little bit of that got directed at us, but uh, there's been no strong feedback from anyone that we talked to for a substantial uh, amount of change. Uh, George talks regularly with uh, GMs, the NHLPA, uh, and with players to get feedback. You know, a couple of years ago, we did a team tour where we visited every NHL team um, George uh, met with all, all 31 teams and gave them the chance to ask questions, raise complaints, uh, left an anonymous survey uh, to try and figure out if there were things that guys wanted to be done differently. And the response from GMs, from the NHLPA, from those players is that, that things are good, that um, while, we, while we may you know, come under fire for individual decisions, uh, the process itself is good. Um, Everyone seems happy with uh, overall the decisions we're making. And, you know, when someone gets suspended, they're not going to be happy. Their team's not going to be happy. But, you know, Evander put those comments out there, and then it kind of went away. There wasn't a groundswell of support. There weren't uh, a flood of players calling the NHLPA or calling their general managers to uh, agree with them and say, you know, we got to use this uh, and fix it. It it just kind of went away. So we saw it for what it was, which is a, a frustrated player, uh, upset with the decision, wanting to vent, and we all just moved on with our lives. Did you guys reach out to Evander at all? Because there was clearly a disconnect of what he believes you guys do and what your actual process is. Did you try to clear the air at all? Uh, I don't know if George did after the fact. I know he and Evander have talked a couple different times this year um, about uh, the legality of plays, the way Evander plays, and trying to help him understand uh, what to do to avoid being suspended. And this was before his suspension. So one of the things our department tries to do is to be proactive. And if we see players who are playing on the edge or uh, hitting a certain way or getting close uh, to to supplemental discipline, uh, a lot of times we'll have someone from the department call them and just say, hey, here's what we're seeing a lot of recently. Just be aware that you know, you haven't crossed the line yet, but if that happens, uh, you might be hearing from us. So it's a courtesy to the players to, to try and educate them uh, on what they might be doing. Um, I know George did that with Evander earlier this year um, and gave him the, the time to reach out and talk about styles of hitting and, and how to safely avoid uh, hitting a player in the head. I don't know. I don't believe that George has reached out since then, um, but I know he has talked to 
uh, Shark staff, uh, Doug Wilson, and other people in the organization sent them to, to discuss it. And I think everyone's happy with, uh, with where it's landed since then. I think people are curious how you folks determine the punishments for some of these incidents. And, and in particular, what, what goes into the call to make something a fine rather than a suspension? Um, it's just the, the degree of what we're seeing, um, to, to be honest. I mean, the, the things that we look at on every play are, first and foremost, was a rule broken? Um, you know, we see a lot of hits that we might not like. Uh, maybe they're unnecessary plays or maybe they're kind of scummy plays, um, and, and we might not like them. We might say, you know, to use an easy example, if you throw a big hit at 1959 of a period, there's no need to throw that hit. It's an unnecessary hit. There's a second left in the period, but there's no rule against that. The, the clock goes to 20 minutes for, for a reason. So we'll see that whistle, a lot with buddy. one second left. In the, what's that? You play to the whistle. <laughs> exactly. So we see that a lot with one second left in the game. Somebody drills a guy in the corner, and everyone's mad, and, and we're looking at that, and, you know, those are ones that former players Ray and George and, and Q are looking at going like, why do you got to do that? Just leave the guy alone. You don't have to do that. But no rule was broken. So first and foremost on all these plays, we have to figure out was a rule broken. Then we're looking at things like, uh, you know, I, I would say force is probably the most important thing. Um, and I think that's where a lot of times there's confusion around our decisions because people are looking at two plays and they're going, oh, you know, this was a, an elbow to the face, and this was an elbow to the face, and one was a, a fine, one was a suspension, and it, it's very hard to quantify. We think this guy hit him five thousand dollars worth of hard, and this other guy hit him one game worth of hard. But that's kind of what we're doing on a lot of these. Is the the force here uh, is different between the two? Um, we look at things like uh, the intent on a play. Um, we talk a lot in our videos about a hockey play versus a non-hockey play. Yeah. Are you going in trying to throw a legal body check to separate the guy from the puck? Or are you doing something completely unnecessary after the whistle, uh, using your stick in a way that uh, is just completely unnecessary? Is on an unsuspecting player, um, someone who's not prepared for the contact, that type of thing. Um, th- those are all things that we'll look at once we've established that a rule is broken. So, um, you know, the, the fine limit is something that we're not always uh, happy about. I know fans see that a lot where uh, a player cross-checks somebody up high and gets a $2,000 fine, and we see tweets like, oh, that's in his couch cushions, or, uh, you know, everyone's confused why there's 16 cents tacked on to the end uh, of a fine for a player. Um, so to clarify that briefly, we are allowed to fine players up to one-half of one day's pay up to $5,000 without a hearing and up to $10,000 if we have a hearing. So for a lot of players in the league, the maximum we're allowed to find them is in that two or $3,000 range. That's a, a CBA negotiated uh, limit um, that, that we're uh, capped by. So there are times when we think a play doesn't quite merit a one game suspension. So we, we do want to do something. So we know that a $2,000 fine might not be the most punitive thing we can do, but it gets the player on the record. He's informed that he's not supposed to do that. Um, we can track uh, the players who are doing those types of plays, and it's what we're limited by by the CBA. 
Patrick, something else that falls into your purview is the NHL skills at All-Star. And I think one thing our listeners don't know is you were instrumental in getting Kendall Coyne Schofield uh, to do the fastest lap, which obviously was an iconic moment. But I want to know about the regular skills. What is the hardest skill to convince players to want to participate in? And what is the easiest one when you've got to convince them like, hey, you got to do something. This is the skill you should do at All-Star. All right. Well, a slightly more fun topic than the supplemental discipline. So this will be nice. <laughs> that's, what, that's the balance um, of me and Greg here. <laughs> yeah. And then we're going to swing it back at the end and hit me with something hard once I, once I yeah, lose of course. a little bit. Is that, yeah. You know what okay. we're doing. heard the show. <laughs> um, yeah. So along with uh, Steve Mayer, who's the chief content officer for the NHL and, you know, a whole team of people, obviously, uh, we, the two of us uh, uh, kind of spearhead the skills competition. Um, the easiest skill to get a player to participate in is anything that doesn't involve much movement. Um, <laughs> this year, even though there were some nerves with it being a new event, a lot of guys wanted to do shooting stars. Um, there, there was a lot of uh, demand uh, to be in something that involved taking your skates off, uh, being in jeans and just shooting pucks without having to move. Conversely, uh, the hardest one is always fastest skater. Um, I will say the last couple of years, we've had a great group. There are some young guys who have come into the league who were so excited to do fastest skater. I think Matt Barzell would do fastest skater every day of the week if we allowed it. Um, you know, when, when he made his first all-star game, their PR guy called and was like, he'll do everything and he wants to win fastest skater. And I was like, great. Love Matt Barzell. Great attitude. Um, so th- there's been some young guys who come into the league who, are enjoying it more, but generally because that's the only one where you get winded, uh, that has been the least popular one uh, to get guys to participate in. What's your white whale? What's your one player that you'd love to cast in a skill competition, but he's always said no? Uh, I mean, I wouldn't say players have said no. The the one thing that we talk about uh, internally a lot is whether we should just be bringing the fastest skaters to all-star and the hardest shooters to all-star and actually do a, a league-wide test, you know, mm. Chara versus Weber versus Pareko versus Pulak. Versus uh, you know, I'm missing a few guys in there. Martin Furk um, for hardest shot, and then, you know, name your 10 fastest guys uh, for fastest skater. Um, obviously, there's a lot of, uh, of reasons not to do that, but um, every, every guy's been pretty good. We've had to cajole some guys and, and make some trades of if you do this for me this year, you never have to do it again, huh. uh, which is why if, if you go back and look one year, Nathan McKinnon did hardest shot because we <laughs> ran out of people. And now <laughs> Nate gets to choose what he does every year um, because he, despite his very famous line of Berkey, I shoot muffins. I can't do that. Uh, stepped up and did it for me anyway. So um, he gets to kind of pick his event uh, every year going forward because he, he really That's helped MVP, us out on man. that one. That's hilarious. Yeah, I want to say he was concerned he wouldn't break the 90s, and I want to say he and Drew Doughty both ended up at like 92, 93. Um, so not our best hardest shot contest ever. But Nate is another one of those guys who's like, I'll do whatever you want, whatever helps, whatever uh, makes us a better experience for the fans. And, and we love that attitude. What are you going to do with that? Top golf shooting stars competition next year to make it more, uh, to, well, make it better. Well, I think we have to tweak a couple parts of it. Obviously, I think that um, 
it was exactly what we were hoping for in that it was visually spectacular. It was like nothing we've ever seen uh, at a hockey game. It was a built-for-TV and social media event. Um, we need to change the scoring, obviously. Um, we didn't uh, anticipate players just only shooting at uh, the one target over and over and over again. Um, so we, we need to change the scoring up a little bit um, and, and change how the targets kind of look and function. But overall, um, I knew we had a good event because every year while I'm on the bench, my father just texts me and it's like, this sucks. So-and-so is slow. This guy's not trying hard. You shouldn't have put him in this event. And during shooting stars, he didn't text anything. And at the end of the night, he said, what would you think of that event? Like, you know, we were getting some mixed reviews. And he goes, I really liked it, actually. All right. like, oh, we got it. We got a grumpy 70-year-old on board with this. We must be doing something right here. That's the target audience. Big Berkey with the endorsement. All right, listen. The target, the target audience is kids, but if you can get the grumpy old guys on board as well, then everybody wins. Uh, there's a couple NHL things that happen every year that transcend the sport and make it onto our airwaves, whether it's first take, around the horn, PTI. It's usually something like emergency backup goaltenders or anytime Gritty <laughs> shows his face. Uh, but one of them did intersect with your department, and that was the Battle of Alberta. What do you think? Is that good for hockey, bad for hockey, all the antics that involved uh, that series? Um, I, I think that um, teams that don't like each other uh, – create some good hockey. I, I think that it's part of why the NHL has made the playoff matchups the way they are because familiarity breeds intensity and, and we like intensity. We like competition. We like legal physicality. Um, what we don't like is, is when players cross the line, when players get into um, the realm of supplemental discipline and when uh, you know we have to, to have hearings or, or issue fines. Um, so uh, it's a definitely a tough line to walk at times, and there are some players who do an amazing job to, to walk that line of always being on the edge of physical but never quite crossing that line. Um, and in the Battle of Alberta, we had a couple of players who crossed that line, and our department was there. We stepped in. We issued discipline as necessary. But in the subsequent games, when there was still a good amount of dislike for each other, when there was still – uh, a good amount of intensity and physicality in the game. Uh, no one crossed the line. So uh, we like that. We like those games. We like to see uh, physical, intense hockey. We just like to see it done legally. Um, you you were always uh, previously instrumental in uh, the You Can Play organization. You've always been a driving force behind the scenes on uh, diversity and inclusion. Uh, hockey is for everyone kind of thing. I was curious about your thoughts with regards to the St. Louis Blues, who are the only team, uh, now the Sabres say they're doing one, the only team that did not have a hockey is for everyone celebration during a home game. They're doing it during a viewing party, um, and yet found time to have three different Boy Scout nights. I was wondering how how you felt about that with the Blues. Well, I, because I left You Can Play a couple years ago, and I'm not uh, involved in the day-to-day -day there, I, I don't know what the process was behind that i know that when i was there the blues uh were very supportive very helpful um doug armstrong has been a, a good friend of the burke family for a long time and was was incredibly helpful on a, a few different things with you can play uh over the years so um i don't know what the decision making process was there i can't speak to it um i know they have been incredibly helpful and supportive in the past on these initiatives and it might have just been a scheduling thing. They they did just win the Stanley Cup, and, and there's a lot going on. 
Um, obviously, I, I hope that every team in the league recognizes the importance of uh, diversity and inclusion nights, not because they sell tickets, which they do, but even if they didn't, it would still be the right thing to do um, to make make sure that underrepresented groups in the hockey world feel welcomed and included um, in our arenas is something that the league takes very seriously. Uh, Kim Davis, who heads up all of our diversity and inclusion in- initiatives for the league, does, does such an amazing job of constantly advocating both publicly and behind the scenes to, to keep pushing things along, to keep uh, encouraging everyone to take the next step. And um, I, I think we've seen that. I mean, when you look at what the first couple you can play nights were, where it was, you know, you guys can get 20 tickets and maybe we'll acknowledge you on um, uh, the scoreboard at some point yeah. to, um, you know, every year now Madison Square Garden is, is lit up with rainbow lights and Carolina Hurricanes Twitter uh, account was was phenomenal in uh, aggressively advocating for why diversity and inclusion is important uh, for the Carolina Hurricanes. And um, we've seen the window move from we'll do this if you leave us alone to this is something that's important to our organization and, and the league uh, through you know, leadership here from Gary Bettman to, to Kim Davis to uh, Jessica Berman, who just left to go to the National Lacrosse League. But uh, the number of people on their team here who are constantly pushing uh, everybody in the hockey community forward. Um, the only other note on hockey is for everyone that we didn't touch on real quick is how good was Kate Scott the other night uh, on the, the all-female broadcast for, for NBC? Um, I knew AJ was, was phenomenal. I knew Kendall was phenomenal. Um, Captain Tappen and, and uh, Jennifer Bottrell are, are both amazing at their job. For Kate Scott to go in calling her first uh, NHL game and play-by-play with a crew that she hasn't worked with before and to be that good, um, I've known Kate for years, so um, I, I might be a little biased here, but um, I think hockey would be lucky to add her full-time as a play-by-play person because she was not just okay. I texted her after. I said I was prepared to lie to you. But wow, <laughs> God, damn, God damn, were you good at that job? So uh, I hope she decides. She's prepared like hell, and fun. she's got a good voice. So those awesome. are two good components. Oh, she's phenomenal. Yeah, and just she knows how to pace the game. She know her innate feel for calling a game is unbelievable. And I hope somebody who has the authority hires her to do full time play by play in hockey. We can get her out of basketball. All right, but I really appreciate the time. As always, you guys keep reaching out anytime you want to talk player safety. We we love being a transparent department. We love uh, answering questions. Reach out anytime. Have myself or anyone else from our staff back on anytime. And uh, thank you for having me. Our thanks to Patrick Burke for fielding all of our questions. Um, Patrick told us after the interview that uh, he was over-caffeinated. I, he felt the same to me. From our previous conversations with him, <laughs> he was perfectly right. caffeinated. And I, what was most interesting to you that he said? Um, I like you know it's funny. Like you could, I think people don't quite understand behind the scenes how passionate he is about the skills competitions. And yeah, I, I, I'm happy people could could see that because when you and I bump into him at these All Star games, there's a certain sort of like childish glee that he has in trying to pull this it's thing an energy I mean, yeah yeah i mean okay there's also like a boiling irish anger about guys not participating in the things they want them to but there's also a childish glee in being able to pull off this show every year and i think people got a sense of that from that that question you asked so that's always good 
Segment two is not going to be about viruses or people getting sticks to the face. It's going to be about these teams and these standings. We're going to do a little superlatives for the NHL as we reach the final weeks of the season. First up, Emily, the team overall, playoffs or no playoffs, that you're most surprised by in a positive way. Well, as we record this, this is a playoff team, and that would be the Minnesota Wild. Yeah, I have right? no idea how they're doing this with the mostly roster that Paul Fenton created for Bill Guerin, uh, minus Jason Zucker, one of their best players who they traded away. You know, I talked to Guerin early in the year when they were having that little bit of a run after their really, really poor start, and he's saying, you know, everyone told me that I should blow the whole thing up. I was just going to stay patient and see what we have and look how great we are. Then they started sucking. They fired their coach. And somehow they've climbed their way back out of it again, as I mentioned, after they've traded Zucker. I've learned that it's Zucker, not Zucker, so I'm really going to try to work on that. Mm. I think you've been doing it right the entire time. Uh, one of the guys that has really impressed me is Kevin Fiala. He's finally looking like that vaunted prospect. Um, he's, he's found his way in the NHL. He's scoring a ton of goals. Goaltending has been great for them. And I don't know if they can make a playoff run, but even if they make the playoffs this year, I would say that's a total victory for them and they're on the right path. For sure. And it's funny, like, you know, Garen fires Bruce Boudreau to get a better sense of who these players are. And the ancillary result is they all want to prove that they're awesome. And they end up being a playoff team. The one interesting thing about the Wild, and I'm, I'm writing a piece about them for next week that I found when they were in town recently. Um, it's I, I was trying to figure out why they're so good offensively now. Like, they, their defense remains pretty good as it was under Boudreau. Their offense is absolutely taken off. Um, since Dean Everson took over. And the sense I get is that he has preached this to the core for these guys, and they've taken it to heart. If you're going to make mistakes, make it in the offensive zone. Just take a chance. Like, like don't, don't worry about screwing up if you're screwing up trying to score a goal. And these guys took it to heart, and the results offensively are, are just incredible, beyond Fiala, beyond you know what we've seen from him. Everybody seems to be scoring or at least getting scoring chances at a rate that they did, did, did not get under Bruce Boudreaux. So uh, kudos to Gene Evison, a guy who I always thought could make a pretty good head coach, but ultimately maybe isn't, uh, you know, an, an FOB, a friend of Billy, in order to get that job after the season. Uh, team, I'm most well, surprised the by thing... the Blues. I, I don't, yeah. I, can't, well, I can't believe I, I just want to mention are. one more thing on the Wild. Oh, please, go ahead. It was a little juicy nugget that I heard at the GM meetings, because everyone was wondering why they fired Bruce Boudreaux when they did. It was kind of weird timing. Why when you've done it sooner? They were on a little bit of a streak at the time. la di la di la Do you know the the reigning theory is is that they would be in this position. They would actually make the playoffs and he was a pending UFA this summer and Bill Garrett would have to bring him back and he didn't want to bring him back. So that's why he cut bait when he did. Oh, yeah. No, that Makes was sense. definitely a theory that was bandied about when he was fired was how uncomfortable it would be if, if they make the playoffs, which, by the way, in talking to some people around the team, they kind of feel like this uptick would have happened if he was there, too, potentially. Um, and then what do you do? Right. With and, and Bill Guerin was predicting it. Yeah. Then what do you do afterwards? And it's a fair it's a fair point. And uh, and it, he's not Billy's guy. And uh, it probably saved them some uncomfortability after the season. Um, like I said, my, my team's the Blues. I, yeah. I figured they'd be good. I figured they'd be a playoff team. I did not think it was going to be one of those cup and then out of the playoff type situations. I didn't think they'd be first in the division at this point. Um, that's a real, you know, people were always like, can you capture lightning in a bottle twice? And they haven't necessarily <laughs> captured lightning in a bottle twice. I mean, look at Jordan Bennington's save percentage. 
Um, but they've definitely played really, really well and done so without Vladimir Tarasenko, which is the most incredible part of this whole equation. So I would say the Blues would be my biggest surprise on the positive side, the reigning Stanley Cup champs. Yeah, I was just waiting for their hangover to set in, and it's like when you go out drinking and everyone's dead the next day in the group text, and they're like, I'm dead, I'm dead, and someone's like, weird, I just got back from the gym and I feel great. Like, that's the Blues <laughs> right now. <laughs> Who is the uh, who is the team that you are most disappointed in? Man, it's the Arizona Coyotes. I mm. they that graphic that was going around on Twitter today of what their record was before the Taylor Hall trade versus the Devils and what it is post um, was quite depressing. Um, and look, there's no doubt that there's a correlation between the Arizona Coyotes getting incredible goaltending and then that. Losing and, and them losing Ranta and Kepner, um, around the time that Hall came in, but, um, they put so much resource, so much effort, so much emphasis on making the playoffs this year, getting Phil Kessel, getting Taylor Hall, and the fact that they are where they are right now, um, on the outside looking in, it's disappointing to me. Yeah, I would agree with that. And also, you know, like you said, there was so much work done to try to fix their shooting percentage problem and then, you know, offense being, once again, a challenge for them this season. My most disappointing team is the San Jose Sharks. I, I mean, they cratered. They basically cratered. They, they made financial decisions that cost them a number of guys in the summer, be it Pavelski, be it Donskoy, be it Nyquist, be it whomever, Justin Braun. Um, it's hard to imagine a San Jose Sharks team not being competitive and being an also ran and firing their coach in season. And yet here we are. So it's it's striking to think about where they are. And it's striking to think about the work that Doug Wilson's going to have to do to try to surround this team with the type of talent they're going to need to turn things around next season. So I, I would say uh, most disappointed by the San Jose Sharks. Also disappointing, obviously, because I live there and there won't be any playoff uh, rounds for me, which means I won't be able to see sneakers for... For a while. Well, welcome to my world. No <laughs> dog, no playoffs in Chicago. <laughs> I, I don't pity you. Uh, who is the team that you low-key can't get enough of? Man, I'm going back to my high school self, and I can't help myself but watch every single Rangers game right now, uh, yeah. hoping that they get in. Um, I love watching Artemi Panarin play. I love watching because of better dad play. I was on the edge of my seat during that five goal game. And Shesterkin, now that he's back, I know he had to struggle a bit after his first game back from the rib injury, but he's dynamite as well. So I am super rooting for them to make the playoffs because I would just love to see it. Yeah, it'd be awesome. And, and again, like way ahead of schedule. And if they make the playoffs, as you know, Emily, that means we can vote for Panarin with a, a clear conscience for the Hart Trophy. Um, Toronto is the team I look you can get enough of. I love watching them. They're so much fun uh, because they're horrible defensively and they have amazing offensive players and the constant drama and will the goalie make a save and cutaways to Kyle Dubas without his glasses on looking frustrated. Like all of it. Just all, all of that burgeoning soap opera is something I can't get enough of. And I think I've probably watched the Leafs more than any team this year when they're on just because I know I'm going to see some some whackness in some way shape or form finally good team you're pretty sure can't win the stanley cup i'm surprised they're a good team but for me it's the edmonton oilers mm. uh they are looking good they're you know 
they were kind of toe in toe with Vegas at the top of the Pacific Division. I think the loss last night shows that Vegas is the team to beat. Um, but they just keep leaving their goaltender out to dry and they don't have good enough goaltending to allow that to happen. They had a series of three wins against Winnipeg, Dallas and Columbus where they won, but they were outshot 130 to 73. That's not a sustainable style. And like no. we can talk a lot about, oh, it's just a two man team. It's a dry settle McDavid show. They don't get any help, but it's far deeper than that. So I, I think they're going to make the playoffs. Obviously, I think they can, you know, beat a team or two, but I just don't see them breaking Canada's longstanding drought of Stanley Cups. Yeah, I'm going to go with Colorado, which I know will not be a popular pick and will probably Spicy. people saying that I'm saying this because Ray Bork beat the Devils in 2000. Who cares? Listen, 2001, by the way. I don't think this is a team that knows how to win yet. I feel like this is a call. I feel like when I look at Colorado, I'm looking at a team that needs to get knocked on its behind in the conference final before it knows how to run. That's how I feel about Colorado. And that might be my wrong read. Maybe they're good enough to win this year. They seem like that team that needs to go play that seven-game series, get their heart broken in game seven in the conference final, come back next year, and now they're winning like every cup. Like that's the kind of team that feel like to me. Maybe I'm wrong. I hear you on that. Now it's time for our favorite segment of the week. Phil Kessel loves hot dogs. No, he does not love to eat hot dogs. Our weekly look at sad hyperbole and strange narratives of the hockey media. Good one, Randy. Good one. It's Phil Kessel loves hot dogs. Part of the show each week where we look at the foibles, hyperbole, and gigantic mistakes of the hockey media. And by golly, do we have a mistake this week. Keeping with our coronavirus theme for this week's episode, the San Jose Mercury News published a story about Santa Clara County uh, banning mass gatherings of more than a 1,000 people and included this paragraph. According to the SAP Center's website, all events at the SAP Center have been canceled for the month of March, which includes three Sharks games and then a bunch of other stuff. Problem number one, this was nowhere on the SAP website. Not anywhere. Nowhere to be found. Not a single word that even came close to saying that all the events in March have been canceled. Now, a Tony Robbins motivational speaker performance, or four, were canceled, but not every event in March was canceled. Problem two, they would not cancel Sharks games. They would postpone them or move them. Canceling Sharks games means that the Sharks would play 79 games this season. That's what cancel means. Problem three. Since they were the first out of the gate with a story, and people know to go to the Mercury News for shark stuff, all of Canada picked up this stuff about SAP Center canceling their entire March calendar, which meant Yahoo Sports wrote a story around it, which meant TSN tweeted a thing about it. So now it's like garbage out, more garbage spread, all because of, of horrible reporting. They finally corrected the story about an hour later, but the damage is already done. So the San Jose Mercury News for horrible reporting in the middle of a, a well, a crisis, I guess you can call it, gets to fill Castle Loves Hot Dogs this week. Bad stuff, Emily, if you ask me. Not good. Um, not great, Bob. Not great, Bob. All right, now it's time for Puck Headlines. Dateline, goal scoring race. 
The Vegas odds on who will win the Rocket Richard Trophy are David Pasternak plus 150, Alex Ovechkin plus 175, Austin Matthews plus 275, Leon Dreisaitl plus 900, and Mika Zibanejad at plus 5,000. I gave you 20 bucks, Emily. Where are you placing it? Mika. Duh. <laughs> to win the goal scoring title? Yeah. Plus 5,000? I'd win a lot of money. That's true. I go Matthews, uh, and I go Matthews for yeah, one reason. One. He's done the majority of his goal scoring on home ice, and beginning tonight against the Lightning, uh, the Leafs play eight of their last 13 games on home ice. So I'll go with Austin Matthews to win his first goal scoring title. Dateline social media. Austin Matthews said this week, if you're not feeling too good about your game, or maybe you had a couple of turnovers, Probably don't check your Twitter mentions after and see all the profiles with no pictures actually shredding your life in half. What do we think about Austin Matthews even trying to go on social media after a least loss? He's a brave man. I love it, though. I love – do you know what I love is the brutal honesty and the fact that we're showing some personality and that he's a real person. I think – we all know that it's all in Austin to show that side of himself. He's kind of been tampered down probably because of the constraints of being in Toronto. So just to see a raw quote like that reminds me like, yeah, this is a real dude and I'd like to see more of it. That reminds me. i got to find out if Mitch Marner's on TikTok. He seems like the kind of guy that might have a TikTok, doesn't he? Yes, for sure. Right, right, gonna right demographic. Got to find out if, if Mitch Marner is somewhere doing Renegade or Cannibal. Dateline NBCSN. You went behind the scenes of the first all-female broadcast uh, for NBCSN, not only on-air talent, but off-air talent. Yeah, one of the coolest things about it is obviously we paid so much attention to Kate Scott doing play-by-play, Kendall and AJ um, doing analysis, and Catherine Tappan and Jennifer Bottle in the studio. But there were so many women behind the scenes. Nearly 30 worked it overall. And a lot of these women... Pretty much everybody except for Kate Scott who did play-by-play because they had to pull her from another sport because women just don't do play-by-play in the NHL yet. Um, all work hockey games all season long, but they don't get the opportunity to work together. So that was a really neat component of it to me. That's awesome. Uh, Dateline, the playoff bubble. <clears throat> I wrote about changing the playoff format this week, interviewed a bunch of people about it expanding it to play in games, maybe fiddling around with the current format to go from the divisions back to the conferences or even a one through 16 format, which Seth Jones seems to like the thing I discovered, Emily, which I thought was weird. How many people don't want the playoffs expanded? A lot of fans just straight up angry about the idea that when we reach 32 teams, that maybe more than, than 16 should get in, which to me is nuts. I, I know that I'm an old, I know that I remember like 1990, when we're putting like 16 out of 21 teams into the playoffs. But the idea that it's somehow a an affront to all things competitive and, and equitable to try to put in more than half the league into the playoffs, I mean, apparently so for fans, even though I think it'd be fine. No, it's, it's an interesting conversation. Yeah, as you mentioned, what is interesting is that the NHL, as it expands its you know league, it doesn't keep up the ratio of playoff teams. So 50% seems fair, but with the team with the most parity, maybe add a few more in wouldn't be the worst thing. All right. Finally, Dateline Girl Scout cookies. It's Girl Scout cookie time. 
my daughter is not is not selling. My daughter didn't have enough people in her troop in order to sell Girl Scout cookies, which I didn't even know was a thing. I thought even you had just had like one person, you could send them out to the local supermarket and set up a tent and start selling cookies, but apparently not. One has to go. This is from the New York Post. One has to go. You you will throw this cookie into the sun. It will no longer exist. Thin mints, Samoas, Tagalongs, Dosidos. Dosidos are the oatmeal peanut butter sandwiches that they have. Tagalongs, the peanut butter with the chocolate. Samoas, of course, those awesome coconut ones. Thin mints, self-explanatory. Which one goes? Obviously, the Dosidos, and I. I say that with great regret because it's a really fun word to say, dosidos, but nobody really likes anything with oatmeal in it. So goodbye, dosidos. What if I swapped out dosidos for the shortbread cookies? Does that change your math? Mm. I really like the shortbread cookies. They're simple, but just really tasty. So who goes then? What's Do you your keep them and get rid of tagalongs or Samoas with thinmints? Samoas to me are the, are the gotta go. Just the dosidos. Dosidos. Okay. Just Samoas are, are the apex of cookies for me. They're the best. I yeah. Can eat a, they're like, excellent. A sleeve. Or a tray. I guess they come in trays. All right. No time for a rant line. Our thanks to Patrick Burke of the NHL for joining us from the Department of Player Safety and the uh, joys of the All-Star Game. Uh, I am Greg Wyshynski. You could read my stuff at ESPN.com. The playoff story I just mentioned is there. My column, The Wish List, runs on Thursdays. My other podcast, where I say naughty words, Puck Soup, is available on iTunes. I'm Emily Kaplan. Follow me on Twitter at Emily M. Kaplan. I never say naughty words. And bye. Bye. This has been ESPN on Ice with Wyshynski and Kaplan. Subscribe to the show in the ESPN app or Apple Podcasts.